Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, now at the end of the reading, out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, I will conclude by saying this is the word of the Lord. And then I invite us all to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's reading comes from Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest. Oh, that's it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, twos. Andrews want me to preach verse 10. You guys want verse 10 in there? We can do a little bonus time if need be, but thank you guys for uh, reading this morning, and good morning to everybody else. Uh, good to see you all. If I haven't a chance to meet you, my name is Ian. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here and have the privilege this morning to uh, open up uh, God's Word for us as we uh, kind of wrap up both our Advent series uh, and our Isaiah series. We've been in all fall, and uh, it's fun to do that with a choir this morning. And uh, man, Christmas is rapidly approaching. So uh, as we begin today, um, you guys are familiar with the five love languages. Yes, that's big in Christian circles, right? We all want to know what our love language is. Uh, so you could either be physical touch, quality time, giving or receiving gifts, uh, acts of service, words of affirmation, right? We're familiar with some of this language. Uh, if I could add a sixth, I don't know about you, but my love language is food, just Point blank, right? I mean, if we have good company with a good meal, like, I'm in my sweet spot, right? My wife is not that. She's a big words of affirmation person, right? You can pray for her. It's my, one of my weaknesses, but, you know, growing in Christ-likeness in that way. But uh, when we want to celebrate, I want to go get a nice meal. She just wants us to, like, talk to each other. So we can do both at the same time, right? That's how that works. Uh, but whether you are ready or not, uh, we are five days away from Christmas. And as we approach Christmas... This is certainly the time of year for feasting and celebrating, isn't it? I mean, Thanksgiving really kicks off a season of feasts where many of us will gather with family or with friends or even with coworkers for the Christmas parties and celebrations that this time of year brings. And if these parties and celebrations are done right, they have delicious food to go along with the good company, don't they? And I think this feasting, this time of year, it reminds us that more is going on when we share a good meal with good company than just a full belly and warm hearts. There's something about feasting that is a bit heavenly. In fact, it's interesting how often feasting or meals or food itself shows up in the Bible. It's not a stretch to argue that you could summarize the whole storyline of the Bible just by tracing meals and food. You ever thought about that? 
I mean, go back to the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, we've got a conversation right off the bat around food, don't we? And then for the Old Testament people of God, Israel, their entire cultural society was structured around seven feasts, seven parties, beginning with the Feast of Passover, then you throw in the Feast of Pentecost, of Booths, it goes on from there. You get to the New Testament, Jesus shows up on the scene, his very first miracle is, of all places, at a wedding feast. Then he tells stories like the prodigal son, where the old, oldest son returns home, and what does the father do? He throws a banquet feast, kills the fattened calf in celebration. Of course, Jesus shares his last supper with his disciples. Then the epistles, the, the letters of the New Testament tell us about the Lord's Supper, communion. And then, of course, the end of the story is us waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, you could tell the whole story of the Bible through feasts. And as we wrap up today, our Advent series, and as we wrap up our look at Isaiah, our attention this morning is going to be drawn to the great feast, the feast that all of those meals are meant to point to, and the feast that in this Advent season, where we look back at Christ's coming, but long for his second, we look forward to in the future. So here's our main idea from Isaiah 25, and then we'll jump in and look more at this feast. We are to eagerly wait for the great banquet feast of God when he swallows up death forever. We are to wait, eagerly wait, for the great banquet feast of God when he swallows up death forever. Before we jump in, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Uh, Father, we come before you in the midst of the hustle and bustle of this season that we find ourselves in, and uh, we are in need this morning of a reminder from your word of the good news of Christ, a reminder that Christ has come, that thing that we remember during this Christmas season, a reminder that he has come as the light of the world to drive out the darkness, but we also acknowledge this morning that we still feel the effects of the darkness, and we are longing for the day when they will be driven out once and for all. And so, Lord, as we draw our attention to this great promise in your word in Isaiah of a great feast that waits us in the future, May you draw our attention and may you whet our appetites for our great day of hope that lies out ahead. May you, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel together this morning. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. So as we walk through these four verses, I want to look at three realities. I want to look first at the future feast, secondly, the destruction of death, and then thirdly, the end of exile. So let's begin with the future feast. Look back with me at Isaiah 25, verse 6. Isaiah there says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. See, the setting for this future feast, according to Isaiah, is on this mountain, and the mountain is a big theme in Isaiah and throughout the prophetic books. It's a reference to Jerusalem or to Mount Zion when they're prophesying about the future. Now, I've never been, but when people go and visit Israel and they're familiar with the Bible, they often are struck by just how flat Jerusalem is. Properly speaking, Jerusalem is not on a mountain. It is on a small hill. Uh, us, as good Floridians, we'd be right at home, right? We're like, oh, yeah, that's a mountain by our standards, right? But everything's pretty flat. So what's going on with this mountain language? Well, in the scriptures, when it references a great high mountain of Mount Zion coming, 
it's not talking about altitude. It's talking about significance. Let me show you that just briefly. Back in Isaiah 2, a similar vision from Isaiah. In verse 2, he says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. You see, we're talking about a great mountain of significance, not of height. And this is symbolic as well for the original hearers because in the ancient world, mountains were home to the gods. And they were often the place where those so-called gods or kings or rulers would show off their power, their glory, and their wealth. That's why we see that kings would often hold elaborate, over-the-top, ridiculous feasts. And they were to be treated as divine as they do so. Whether it be King Belshazzar and Daniel, Xerxes and Esther, or one historical record says that one of the kings of Assyria claimed to hold a banquet for close to 70,000 people. This was the custom. That's a lot of people, by the way. That's a lot of food. But here in Isaiah 25, we have the Lord himself hosting a feast. And while some of these other banquets may have been impressive, Isaiah tells us that the nations are going to come to this feast. And the Lord, as the host, has prepared everything. You see, friends, when God holds the feast, he is not inviting people to come and to help set the table or to do the dishes or to bring a side dish. This great banquet feast is not a potluck. The table has already been set. The food and the drink are already prepared. The host is eagerly anticipating our arrival and the nations flowing to it, and he himself is going to serve us. This is a picture of divine and sacred hospitality. Now look at how this feast is described. It's marked by two things. The first is inclusivity. Who is invited? It says all peoples. All peoples have been given an invitation. This is an act of radical hospitality and welcome from the Lord of hosts. Everyone is invited. And your ticket in the door is not to come with anything, not to come with your good deeds, not to come with your side dish, whatever it is, not to come with your service. Your ticket through the door is to come empty-handed, clinging alone to Jesus Christ, the one who beckons all to come to him. What does he say in Matthew 11 after all? Come to me, not some, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The Lord is a gracious host who invites all peoples to his banquet feast of grace, which also means that everybody at the table is happy. All the guests are joyful. I mean, what an honor to be welcomed to this kind of feast and this table. That means you don't have to sit next to a grumpy person, right? Everybody is satisfied. No one's going to say embarrassing things. You don't have to have the kind of pre-dinner heads up. You know, maybe you got some friends coming over and you're like crazy uncles coming. You're like, hey, he's going to talk about this and this. Like, just let him go, right? Don't, don't feed into it. We've all had those conversations. You're getting ready to have one this week, aren't you? None of the pre-dinner warnings are coming. Everyone there is joyful, happy to have a seat at the table. It's marked by inclusivity. Secondly, it's marked by generosity. 
Most meals are pretty forgettable, aren't they? If I asked you what you had for lunch two Wednesdays ago, you probably couldn't answer off the top of your head. But some meals, they're quite memorable, aren't they? And this is certainly one of those meals. I mean, no expense is spared. It consists of rich food and fine wine. The Lord is not saving his best stuff for later. No, he's not holding out on us. The finest of food and drink is available to all who come. This is symbolic for the abundance and the nourishment of the salvation we've been offered in Christ. After all, Christ comes and he says that he is offering life and life abundant, life overflowing. This is the invitation of the psalmist when he says to taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, this is a feast of increasing, everlasting joy. It's the feast of salvation fully realized. And when we piece together all that the Bible says about this great feast that awaits us in the future, we see that the real enjoyment of the feast is an enjoyment of Christ himself. It's Jesus who said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I think there's a few implications I want us to consider here. First of all, do you hunger today? Do you hunger in the way that Jesus describes it? Do you thirst today? Are you satisfied in your soul this morning? Have you accepted the generous offer to come to the banquet table of God's grace empty-handed, clinging to Jesus alone? Because listen, if you have not, Christ beckons you today. He beckons any and all who will come to him in faith to be welcomed to the table to be welcomed home. So listen, if that's you this morning, do not delay. Receive the invitation. It is gracious from our Father. And then secondly, for those who have received the invitation, I want us to see that this future feast, it impacts our feasting right now. See, whether it's a dinner with family or friends, whether it's a city group meal you share, whether it's a celebration for a grand occasion like Christmas, I think our feasting today is a foretaste of what awaits us on this day. Our feasting right now is an invitation to pause, to remember, and to prepare our hearts for the great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, as Revelation calls it, that lies in front of us. And think about this. Isn't it incredible that when Jesus wants to instill in his followers a remembrance of who he is and what he has done, he gives us, of all things, a meal to remember. I love what Eugene Peterson says about the Lord's Supper. He says the Eucharistic, another word for communion, meal, uses everyday elements of common life to connect me with the extraordinary and unique crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Eucharist is at one and the same time ordinary and extraordinary the repetition of the commonplace and the celebration of the unique. Meals in all cultures seem to have this capability of stretching from the ordinary to the extraordinary. We know that to be true, don't we? And the Lord's Supper, week after week, is an opportunity to pause and acknowledge in the simple bread and in the simple cup the extraordinary good news of Christ and the great feast that awaits us. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, I would urge you to taste 
and see that the Lord is good. May our feasting right now be a foretaste of the feast that awaits. Now, Isaiah 25.6 jumps into the feast. It doesn't tell us the occasion. This is a grand celebration. Something big must be going on after all. And the answer for the occasion comes in the following verses, and it's nothing less than the destruction of death itself. Look at verses 7 and 8. And he, God, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I think in our current kind of cultural, secular moment, we have a very hard time with death. We don't like to talk about it. We don't really know what to do with it. It's not a topic you'd bring up at a great feast, after all. We tiptoe around it, and quite frankly, we push it to the peripheries of our lives. But... It is part of the human experience, and we can't avoid it, we can't wish it away, and we can't ignore it for very long. No matter what is going on in our world, whether it be peacetime or wartime, famine or plenty, pandemic or health, the mortality rate remains hauntingly the same at one-to-one. And I think this struggle makes sense in our culture, particularly because of secularism, because we live in this flattened world where there's no God, there's nothing out there, so to speak, beyond this life, then death is it. It is the end in every sense of the idea of the end. And that's why many attempt to argue that death is just a natural part of life here and that we have to embrace it. It's just nature running its chorus, and it's just the circle of life, as the Lion King says, right? But you and I know that this does not explain the experience of death when it comes. It's inadequate. So rather than the shallow view, I think the scriptures hold out a more realistic view. Tim Keller's rightly observed that death in the scriptures is four things. Death is, first of all, the great interruption. It ends life as we know it here, and it removes loved ones from one another. It's the great schism. It tears apart the material and the immaterial parts of who we are. It disembodies us. It's the great insult. It's cruel. It reminds us that we are but dust, and to dust we will return. It robs us of joy and gladness. It is frightening, and it looms large over all of us. And finally, death is the great enemy. If I asked you this morning what the scriptures identified as the final enemy to be destroyed, you might answer Satan or the devil, but 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it's death itself. The final enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I don't know about you, but when we are confronted with death, doesn't that describe what we feel more than just nature running its course? So let's go back to the feast. The occasion for this great banquet is that the Lord is dealing with death once and for all. Let's look more closely at the text. There's three big promises here. The first is that God will remove, He will swallow up, destroy the covering and the veil 
that is over all people. The covering literally means in the Hebrew a sheet or a shroud that would have been used in the burial of the dead. And he will remove the veil. A veil hides and conceals from over the nations. Now, what is Isaiah talking about here? I believe he's talking about removing the shadow of death that looms large over all of creation ever since sin entered the world. Remember the warning to Adam and Eve. They can eat from any fruit of the tree except for the one. And the Lord says, when you eat that fruit, if you do so, you will surely, what? You will surely die. Ever since that moment, there is a universal sorrow, gloom, and fear of death and its consequences. I think the author of Hebrews captures this perfectly. In Hebrews 2, he notes that through Christ's death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We all have a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. We can put it out of sight, we can put it out of mind, but then it just pops up and startles us again. Can't avoid it. But God, through the work of Christ, removes that slavery to the fear of death. He takes away the shroud and the veil. They will not have the final word. Secondly, in point blank in verse 8, God will swallow up death itself forever. There was an ancient myth at the time of Isaiah that Baal, the powerful, false, idolatrous God that the people of Israel were tempted to worship, that Baal himself would be swallowed up by death, using that same language. But here, Isaiah is given a vision of who is truly powerful, who is truly God, and who is in charge. The Lord will swallow up death forever. Life wins in God's economy. Light drives out the darkness in God's kingdom. Death is not the final state. Life is. But there's more. Thirdly, God will wipe away every tear, and he will remove the reproach or the disgrace of his people. All the things that cause disappointment, pain, and hardship in this life will be gone. Like a father comforting his child who has fallen down, God himself with a tender touch will remove our tears. None of our sorrows, none of our tears wasted. And all will see the truth about God. There'll be no more confusion. God will reign. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, whether in worship or in a yielded defeat. Now, don't forget that the destruction of death that begins in verse 7, the location matters. Notice where this takes place. He says in verse 7, he will swallow up on this mountain. It's the same reference as verse 6. And what that draws our attention to is back to Jerusalem, back to that promise of Mount Zion. And it reminds us that this is the location precisely where Jesus completes his mission. Remember, Jesus, in his ministry, he resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem, and he tells his disciples three times, listen, we're going to Jerusalem, and when we get there, I will be betrayed, I'll be handed over to the authorities, they will try me, and I will be crucified, I will rise again. 
And Jesus, on that cross, accomplishes the promise of what's going on here in Isaiah 25. I think about what happens as he's dying on the cross and he gives up his spirit. Of all things, the veil in the temple is torn in two, top to bottom. What concealed and hid a holy God from his people now is gone. The veil removed. And then three days later, in his resurrection from the dead in John 20, it's a great chapter in the Bible. That's, that's where John talks about the foot race with Peter to get to the tomb, and then John's like, yeah, and then I got there first. So now it's inspired scripture. So we still talk about it today, right? So in that foot race, John gets there first. He looks into the tomb, and what does he see? It says in verse 7 that the burial shroud, the covering of death, is folded up in defeat as if Jesus does his laundry to show who's really in charge. And it's not death. It's his life. You see, death has indeed been swallowed up on this mountain. The shadow of death that hangs over all has been driven out by light because Jesus comes under the shadow of death for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, hear this good news. Death has been defeated. It's been put on notice. But... In our human experience, we still feel its sting, don't we? See, we like to quote 1 Corinthians 15 at funerals, and there can be great reason to do so, but we say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? When the reality is, we're feeling it in those moments, aren't we? We feel its sting. Right now, it still hurts. It still is a reality. We still grieve in the face of death. So how do we make sense of that? Let me illustrate this for us. It might be helpful. I uh, heard this story recently, but very back in the first year of World War I, so this was 1914, there's a story that captures, I think, this relationship with death. As the war was raging on, it was about six months in now, hundreds of thousands of British and German troops were at war with one another on the Western Front, and Christmas was quickly approaching. And what happened was sort of an unofficial Christmas truce. It's super fascinating. You can look it up. There's lots of uh, stories that have been written about it. But on the morning of December 25th, the gunfire, the warfare, the grenades, all of the fighting, it just stopped. The German side put up candles on makeshift Christmas trees. And they began to sing Christmas carols. And then in response, the British side, they started singing as well. Then at some point throughout the day, both sides emerged from their trenches. They exchanged whatever gifts and souvenirs they had in their camp, and then they reportedly even played a game of soccer together. Supposedly the Germans won three to two. But no one fired a shot the whole day. They celebrated Christmas together. But then night came of December 25th. Morning, sun rises on December 26th, and the war just resumed people who exchanged gifts and played soccer, now went back to trying to kill one another. It's kind of a haunting story, isn't it? And I think that's kind of our relationship with death today. It's just a glimpse of it. Death has been defeated. There's reason to celebrate. It has been stripped of its power, but it still is fighting as it goes down. We still feel its sting. That's why Advent is so important. It reminds us and it affirms that feeling of longing for it to be put away once and for all. So as we live in the middle of that, this means that Christians don't despair death. 
we don't avoid it either. Instead, we're invited to pray like Moses in Psalm 90, who says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And then he cries out, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. You see, as we continue to feel the sting of death and the sorrow of this broken, fallen world, the Advent cry is the cry of how long, O Lord? How long? When will this happen? That's the nagging Advent question that we're invited to pray. But as we pray that, what exactly are we longing for? I believe that's verse 9, our final point today, the end of exile. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. How are you doing with waiting today? If you're anything like me, uh, we are often a busy, impatient bunch of people, aren't we? I mean, kids, you're, you're ready for this week to fly by, right? I mean, you're ready for Christmas to get here. I remember as a kid, those days were agonizingly slow, weren't they? And my parents, like, tortured us by going and wrapping all the presents and putting them under the tree, so we had to look at them all week. Now as parents, I'm like, holy cow, this is like, this week is flying by. Like, Friday is coming, right? Christmas Eve is almost here. But the Advent season invites us into that often uncomfortable, unnatural posture of waiting. And it reminds us that our waiting is not in vain. See, I bet there are a number of things in your life right now that you feel like you are waiting on God for. That maybe you feel like God is being slow to act. That maybe he's forgotten about his promises. Because after all, what you're waiting for is fully consistent with his character and nature. Why won't he grant this Maybe you're on the brink of just giving it up, but Advent is an invitation to wait with patience. It's an invitation to trust that even though we can't see it, God's timing is perfect. I think Tim Keller reminds us of this reality. He says, you cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working slowly, or even to be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. God's grace virtually never operates on our time frame, on a schedule that we consider reasonable. He does not follow our agendas or schedules. God seems to forget his promises, but he comes through in ways we can't imagine before it happens. And this, friends, is where I think our situation is not all that unlike the situation of the first Christmas. You see, those in first century Israel, they had been waiting on God for a long time. In fact, it had been 400 years of silence from God. He no longer was speaking to them through his prophets. He felt conspicuously absent. In fact, all the great promises of the Old Testament about a Messiah who was to come, about God's promise to deal with all these things once and for all, they probably felt like, "Ah, it's not going to happen. But yet, in the midst of that waiting, in the midst of that uncertainty, Jesus 
bursts onto the scene unexpectedly when no one was ready. Now, they waited 400 years, and it's been close to a couple thousand years for us. But in God's promises and in God's purposes, our waiting is not in vain. We are invited to look forward with patience to this promised day of Isaiah 25 where we will behold our God, when we will see Him face to face, where all of our longing and our aching and our separation from home, our exile here, will be ended once and for all, where we feast with God and we taste the fullness of our salvation. So how do we wait for that day? Two quick things. We wait for it, first of all, with eagerness, as in we wait watching for that day to come. Now that can feel a bit like a contradictory idea. Waiting is passive. Eagerness is active, but that's what the Bible invites us into. That's what Advent invites us into. We wait with patience, knowing that we can't bring it about, but we look for where God is at work. We open our eyes to where the light is driving out the darkness, where the kingdom of the sun is defeating the kingdom of the enemy. We look and we watch and we do so eagerly. Hebrews 9 says this, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Church, let's eagerly wait for him and for this great feast. And as we eagerly wait, second, we wait with a courageous hope. We wait with a courageous hope. We know how the story ends. We know that death does not have the final word. That though it is an enemy, it is a defeated enemy. And it will have an expiration day. And life everlasting is what follows. And that allows us to stare into the darkness as we talked about a few weeks ago, to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, both within and without, and to offer a courageous hope to the world around us. Fleming Rutledge says it beautifully. She says, those who serve God still stand in a dark place, but we strain forward with expectation and an unconquerable hope toward the horizon where the sun of righteousness will appear someday with healing in his wings. Church, that's the day we long for. We are to eagerly wait with a courageous hope for the great banquet feast that lies ahead in the future. And church, until that day comes, we get to participate now as a preview of what is to come by being glad and rejoicing in his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we are in need of a reminder of this promise that awaits us in the future. And I pray in this Advent season, as we long for your coming, that you would create in us a patient endurance. You would create in us an eager patience for the day that is promised, the day where we will see you face to face, our salvation fully realized, and it will be the end of our waiting and our longing and our aching here in this world. So for those of us here who are barely hanging on, who are feeling the darkness shadow of death looming over us and over our world, remind us of the hope we have in Christ. 
Remind us that, Jesus, you have come, and you have promised to come again. And in whatever we are waiting for in our lives, Holy Spirit, may you draw our attention to the good news of this feast that awaits. Help us to taste and see now that you are good and create in us an endurance of faith to make it till that day. We pray in Christ's name.